are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. This is episode 109 of Lighthearted, scheduled for March 14th, 2021. Astronomical Spring officially begins at the Equinox, which will occur next Saturday, March 20th at 5.37 a.m. Meteorological Spring supposedly started a couple of weeks ago. How was your winter, Michelle? It was pretty good. I love having the snow. I wish we had a little bit more snow this winter, but I like winter. I like it a lot. Yeah, the, the snow's pretty. <laughs> I'll give you that. Yeah, the yeah. temperature every day in my greenhouse, as long as it's sunny, is between 62 and 72 degrees. So I kind of like that, too. I love the spring in New England. I'm really looking forward to uh, getting some yes. nice, beautiful spring-like weather here. And last year, we had an outstanding spring. Yeah, I can't remember that long ago, although we were all kind of indoors for the most part, as I remember. Right. Uh, yes. Well, uh, speaking of history, on this date in Lighthouse history, on March 14, 1798, Congress appropriated $13,250 for a lighthouse at Eaton's Neck on Long Island, New York. The lighthouse was built quickly and went into service on January 1, 1799. It's the second oldest lighthouse in New York after Montauk Point Light, which began operation in 1797. The American photographer Diane Arbus was born in New York City on March 14, 1923. She once said, quote, You can only grasp the world by action, not contemplation. The hand is the cutting edge of the mind, end quote. Speaking of really old lighthouses, today's subject is the oldest standing lighthouse in the Western Hemisphere, Sambro Lighthouse in Nova Scotia, Canada. And speaking of grasping something by action, our two guests have taken an active role in the preservation of Sambro Lighthouse. Let's start by telling everyone a little bit more about Sambro Lighthouse and our guests. The brightly striped red and white tower on Sambro Island near Halifax, Nova Scotia is the oldest lighthouse in the Americas. The first act passed by the Nova Scotia House of Assembly on October 2, 1758 authorized the lighthouse. It was paid for by a tax on vessels entering Halifax Harbor. The tower stands 82 feet high and its light is 140 feet above the water. In its more than 260 years of service, Sambro Lighthouse witnessed many shipwrecks and sea battles. More recently, during both World War I and World War II, German submarines torpedoed a number of Allied vessels near the island. In 1966, Sambro's old first order Fresnel lens was replaced by a modern rotating DCB aero beacon type light. The original plan was to scrap the old lens, but it was rescued and put on display by the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic in Halifax. The station was automated and destaffed in 1988. The Nova Scotia Lighthouse Preservation Society succeeded in having the lighthouse designated as a classified federal heritage building in 1996. Two years later, the tower was reshingled and repainted. In 2008, more restoration work was completed and a solar power system was installed. Another major restoration project was carried out in 2016. 
a new local nonprofit organization has also been formed to preserve the lighthouse, the Sambro Island Lighthouse Heritage Society. Joe Fleming, who lives in Ketch Harbor, Nova Scotia, is a past president of the Nova Scotia Lighthouse Preservation Society, and he has played a large role in the preservation of Sambro Lighthouse. We'll also be hearing today from author and former lighthouse keeper, Chris Mills, who is a founding member of the Nova Scotia Lighthouse Preservation Society. I had a chance a couple of weeks ago to speak with Joe Fleming. Let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking today with Joe Fleming in Nova Scotia. Uh, thank you so much for being with me today, Joe. Thank you for having me. First of all, you live in the Halifax area, I believe. Is that right, Joe? Yeah, very near Halifax. I'm actually out in Ketch Harbor, about uh, about a kilometer away from Sambro. I don't know if I've mentioned to you that I have some roots in Nova Scotia, my ancestral roots. My ancestor founded uh, Pubnico on the, the south coast. And uh, there's actually a couple of lighthouse keepers in my family tree down there. The Abbott's Harbor Lighthouse, which I think is the oh, actual wonderful. lighthouse has been moved to a museum, I believe, an Acadian museum. But right. You've, of course, been very involved in the preservation of Sambro Lighthouse. And speaking of connections, I understand you have a family connection to Sambro Island. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Now, I didn't know about this, you know, through my entire life. It wasn't something that was really known to my family. Uh, I had started doing family research, doing, you know, compiling my family tree and uh, looking through records. And I found in a poll tax for the community and I was looking for my ancestor's name where I knew he had been at least from that area. And as I looked through it, all of a sudden I found his name, but it was in its own little category at the bottom. And it was listed with, with Matthew Pennell Sr. and Jr. listed at being at the Sambro Island Lighthouse. So that was my first indication that my ancestor had any connection with the lighthouse. Also, I understand you had some Navy experience, and I'm wondering if that uh, had any influence on your, your interest in Sambro Island or in lighthouses in general. Well, it certainly had an influence as far as lighthouses go. I spent a you know a fair amount of time at sea. I didn't spend an entire career at sea, but uh, but I spent a lot of days at sea, months at sea. And whenever you're on your way home, one of the things you're always looking for is a sign of home. And, you know, the captain's up there saying, "Oh, you know, we'll be home in two days, three days," and you you never really believe him. You wonder where they're taking you, and then all of a sudden you see the lighthouse. And I always used to explain how I'd be sipping on a coffee and the sun would be coming up and all of a sudden you'd see Sambro Lighthouse on the horizon and you knew you were home when you saw that lighthouse. That was it. There were no more tricks and there was no turning back. We'd all paddle to get home if we had to. Yeah, lighthouses have that connection for a lot of people. It represents home. So what led to your involvement with the Nova Scotia Lighthouse Preservation Society and specifically the effort to preserve Sambro Lighthouse? Well, I started to... Um... To, to look at the family history connection I had with the lighthouse. And through that research, I came across a, uh, a Facebook group, which was the, the Sambro Island Lighthouse Heritage Society, and uh, noticed that they were making efforts to preserve the lighthouse and to try to get it protected. And I thought, you know what? Here's a family connection. I've always loved that lighthouse. Uh, here's an opportunity for me to reach out and see if there's something that I could offer. To, uh, to help. I was in logistics, so I thought maybe through fundraising and things of that nature, I might be able to, to lend a hand. So I reached out and, and got in touch with uh, Stephanie Smith and Sue Paul, who were uh, working with the community to do what they could to raise awareness of the lighthouse and its importance. And uh, from there, we formed a wonderful relationship and uh, met lots of great people through there. Barry McDonald, who was the president of the 
Nova Scotia Lighthouse Preservation Society and just kind of found a comfortable home where, where I could work with these people uh, who were very genuine and very hardworking and, and very much had the same love for lighthouses that I did. Let's talk about uh, public access to the island. I, I think that's something that's uh, especially important to you. Is that right? It is. Yes, it is. It, it's difficult, though. I mean, many lighthouses along the coast of Nova Scotia here, you, you can get to by land, whether you can drive right up to them, walk to them, hike, you know, but but you can get to them. And so they, they play a role in the tourism in the province. But with Sambro Island and other lighthouses uh, that are on islands nearby, it makes it a little bit more challenging, especially on the open ocean. I mean, the, the North Atlantic can be a pretty wild place. And it can be sunny as can be, but if the winds are up or there's a storm offshore, it can really make it challenging to get a boat out there. And, and really hard, too, even just to get people to understand why you've had to cancel a tour. You know, it, the weather looks beautiful. Why can't we go? Uh, but if you took them out and you showed them the size of the seas and the uh, the surge inside some of those coves, uh, they, they might uh, get a better understanding. But it, it proves difficult and it's challenging and it's hard to convince even Parks Canada that it's a good idea because they look at that also. You know, they look at how many days a year could they get somebody out there. And so we're constantly looking for solutions to that and seeing, OK, well, maybe maybe we need to work with some helicopter tours as well, you know, things of that nature. So it's it's tough to sell it. But I think no matter how many days you could operate the tours, it's going to be worth it. But it's tough when you're dealing with budgets and you're dealing with different organizations within the, the federal government and trying to create alliances, you know, with the provincial government and with the city. You know, it certainly creates a few um, a few roadblocks, I guess you could say. Well, we have a lot of those same issues with uh, offshore lighthouses in the United States as well. So I totally understand what you're talking about. Let's talk a little bit about the history of Sambro Lighthouse. Uh, it's a very long history, obviously. It's my understanding that it's the oldest standing lighthouse tower in the Americas. But it wasn't actually the first lighthouse in Canada, as I understand it. Where, where was the first one? The first one was in Lewisburg, in Cape Breton. And, you know, unfortunately, it had fire damage prior, uh, you know, prior to Sambro being, being built. So, of course... It ended up being one of those lighthouses that was the first site of a lighthouse. Um, and, and as well in North America, Boston. Boston Light was actually older as well. But again, it was destroyed um, and then rebuilt after uh, after Sambro was built. So Sambro definitely gets the title, the standing title of oldest operating lighthouse in the, uh, in the Western Hemisphere, I believe. But, uh, but those two lighthouses at uh, Boston and Lewisburg were, were certainly older. Yeah, what was uh, so special about Halifax Harbor that led to the building of that very early lighthouse? Well, it was uh, one of the first ports and uh, safest ports to be settled here along the Nova Scotia coast. And the British, of course, you know, uh, had this port as a, a highly strategical point or port, I guess you could say. The shipwrecks that would happen on the way into port would, would gain a lot of attention. So it's, uh, at one point, they just had to they had to do something to, to make shipping safer coming in and out of here. Too many too many ships lost, too much uh, loss of cargo, and, and, and far too many lives lost as well. Let's talk a little bit about the construction of the lighthouse. What is the tower actually made of, and when did it get its uh, distinctive red stripes? The tower itself is built out of granite, granite blocks. When you walk inside, you can see them just absolutely massive granite blocks that were, uh, we believe that they were... Um, they were brought from a uh, from a quarry here near Halifax, and 
1907, they decided to raise the uh, raise the tower actually up another 22 feet, from 62 feet up to 82 feet. And it was at that time that they put the red stripes on. Because from sea, when you look at this tower, especially during winter, it would kind of blend in with a white background with snow along the uh, the shoreline. So they put those red stripes on so that you could really see the difference between uh, the lighthouse and the shore itself. Over the years, the lighthouse in uh, Halifax Harbor and the area around the lighthouse, there's uh, been a lot of shipwrecks around there. What are some of the most notable shipwrecks there? The Daniel Steinman, I guess, is probably you know one of the ones that really comes to uh, to mind. The other type of shipwreck that, that I think of a lot, I mean, you had the Esquimalt as well that was out here, but the Esquimalt wasn't wrecked. It was it was torpedoed. And one of the reasons why I, I bring that one up in particular is because during wars, through time, the battles at sea were, were primarily where a lot of the battles happened that, that we were able to see from our shores. And because Sambro Lighthouse played such an integral role of getting ships and convoys in and out of Halifax Harbor, a lot of the enemy U-boats and shipping would be waiting in and around Sambro Island. So that's where they knew that these ships had to go in order to get in the harbor. And so they'd lie in wait in that area. So there were several shipwrecks uh, that were caused actually from the war, not just by hitting the rocks, but, you know, unfortunately that area was, was known to be you know, safe passage into the harbor. So those, those enemy U-boats, especially during World War II, would lie in wait there in order to sink some of those uh, ships that were, were part of those convoys. Have there been naval battles? I guess the torpedoing of uh, vessels, as you mentioned, is sort of a, a form of a naval battle. But anything else of, of note as far as that goes? Well, there have been several different skirmishes. If you look, I mean, the lighthouse was built during the Seven Years' War. Uh, also, uh, you know, you had the War of 1812, you had the Civil War, Revolutionary War, you know, there's, of course, World War One and World War Two. So there have been several sea skirmishes that, that have taken taken place off the shores of, of Sambro Island. And it's hard to really pinpoint any one specific one being, uh, you know, being more intriguing than the other. World War Two, to be honest with you, is the one that intrigues me the most because it's the one that we hear the stories about the most from, from different families in and around Sambro and Ketch Harbor and and just hearing the actual family connections to some of those stories. Um, it included aircraft as well. I mean, we had aircraft uh, during World War II that would be offshore, and we had one that actually had to ditch and actually had to land in Ketch Harbor, uh, just, you know, just a couple miles from the lighthouse, uh, because it got lost in the fog, and it was running out of fuel, and it needed a place to touch down. So it actually touched down in the harbor, just, just not too far from the lighthouse. Are there any particular stories of lighthouse keepers or families on Sambro Island that really stand out for you? Well, I like the stories, uh, and you've probably heard uh, heard my friend Chris Mills mention it uh, in some of his interviews, which is John and Marjorie at Fair Service. When they were on the light, and they were out there until the late 80s when it was de-staffed, and, and I heard a, a story once about how you know their, their, their children would, would go to school in Sambro, during the winter because it was just too rough and too dangerous to transport back and forth. And I heard about John and Marjorie were actually marooned on a, on a little piece of uh, little piece of rock, just not far from the, from the lighthouse itself. And John had to actually swim to shore in order to reach out to the coast guard to get help. 
in order to come and get Marjorie and bring her safely onto shore. And, and it's stories like that, when I hear about just how tough these people were out there, this was everyday life for them. I mean, they spent, you know, over 20 years out there. But that, that story of the hardship and just the everyday tasks that you and I, you know, think we just need to go to the grocery store or we need to pick something up, we just go and do it. And then I think of the challenges and the danger that you hear in stories like that. And it just humbles you when you when you think of what they had to go through just to operate daily life in order to keep themselves and their children safe. Can you remind me how far offshore is Sambro Island? Well, it's, it's a couple of miles. It's a, it's a couple of miles from... Um, you know, from Bald Rock, you know, it's probably a better part of three miles if you're if you're coming out from from Sambro Harbor itself. So it's 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 certainly within sight, but it's in a very rough part of the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, I was thinking how it's uh, not as remote as is a, a lot of offshore lighthouses, but it might as well have been, I'm sure, especially in the the winter. Yeah, absolutely, it's um it's one of those lighthouses where if if nature doesn't want you to get to it, it lets you know early and it lets you know hard. And I also understand that there's some interesting history related to the, the very first fog signal on Sambro Island. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so early on when they needed a method of, uh, of sound signals, the, uh, the Royal Artillery was stationed out on Sambro Island and they had 24-pound guns out there. And they would fire those uh, as a method of signaling to ships that the light was there in fog. And early on, Captain Roos was actually one of the, uh, one of the first, uh, was the first light keeper on the island. And he got fired because he didn't keep a very good light. And, and, and word has it that the, the ships actually had to fire their cannons in order to wake him up so that he would go up and, and clean the, uh, the glass in the gallery so they could see the light as well. So cannons played a played a large role out there, and oddly enough, three of those cannons are are still out there today. Uh, there's part of a fourth, but it looks like uh, like something went horribly awry with the fourth, and it's just in pieces. But it is there, hmm. and so the Royal artillery out there, the cannons firing, and uh, you can just imagine the sound of that booming through the fog to uh, to let mariners know where they were. Let's uh, skip ahead to the more recent history. First of all, I understand the, the, the lantern, the actual top of the, the lighthouse, is not the original one. When and why was a new lantern installed? Right. So in the 60s, that lantern, it was a first order Fresnel lens, and it's been moved to the Maritime Museum of the, of the Atlantic in Halifax. There were several different methods of lighting a lantern through the years, using fish oils and uh, and then onward to kerosene, and then electric, of course. And I think it was just a matter of progression with the times. It was just more efficient, and the technology was uh, was on hand to upgrade and, and to make it less, uh, uh, I mean, I guess you could say it was less difficult to maintain for the light keeper and for the Coast Guard to have to go out and repair it. And so that was in the late 60s that that was uh, changed. And uh, But it's also had other beacons since. You know, it's it's had a, an airport beacon that was up there at one point, and now it's just a small beacon. You wouldn't think that it could do the job, but you look up there now, and it's just a little light bulb with a, a small lens around it that turns, but it's still, uh, it still shines a light. You mentioned the first order Fresnel lens, and you mentioned that it was uh, moved to the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic in Halifax. I visited there a little over 20 years ago, and I love the museum. And that lens is kind of a, a centerpiece, certainly one of the focal points of the museum. As I remember, it was at least when I was there, it was 
one of the first things you see when you enter there. I don't know if that's still the case, but uh, it is. Yeah, it's it just it's a great thing that that lens has been preserved uh, for people to see. Well, and what's really quite quite neat about that, and I heard this story uh, from Chris Mills as well, is that he uh, he mentioned how when they first started to take it apart, they were pretty much throwing it over the side. They, they had no intentions of preserving it. That wasn't the intention. They just wanted it out of there, and they were going to replace it. And you know, and somebody stood up and said, "Hey, whoa, wait, wait a second. We we need to preserve this. This is history." And so then they obviously they, they, they switched to a more delicate method of lowering these pieces to the ground. And thank goodness they did, because it's uh, you know, it really is a centerpiece, as you say, of the Maritime Museum. When you walk in there or even walk on the sidewalk out in front of the building, it, it shines uh, you know, out through the window at you out on the sidewalk. And it's uh, it's stunning. Yes, it absolutely is. Uh, I'd like to shake the hand or maybe uh, hug that person who decided to uh, to save that lens rather than trash it. That's hap- that happened with too many lenses in both our countries. Uh, Absolutely. What remains on Sambro Island, the light station there, besides the actual lighthouse tower? Well, right now there is a gas house which is on the island. And the gas house is down below in the cove where they had uh, manufactured acetylene. But there's also a generator building which is up beside the lighthouse. And it's in bad repair, but it's been used as kind of a a home base for the different renovations that have been done over the last few years. And so it still stands. It still has a solid foundation, uh, but the roof is weak and it uh, it certainly needs some repair. And it has some historical value of its own, uh, especially the gas house as well. We've done a couple projects out there with uh, with our Department of National Defense to, to try and reinforce it a bit, to try and make it hold on as long as it can until we can come up with a... Uh, a solid plan for preservation. But other than that, the other buildings are gone. Unfortunately, we had one uh, one keeper's house that was removed back in the 70s, floated ashore, and, and that does still exist even today. And, uh, and that's wonderful. The other one got destroyed by a storm just over the last couple of years. And of course, there was one prior to that that was uh, set ablaze by vandals. You know, unfortunately, it's kind of one of those situations where there's nothing left other than those those three structures, and there used to be several. So in 1997, uh, Sambro Island Lighthouse was designated a protected heritage building. Uh, what kind of condition was the lighthouse in by that time? Well, the condition uh, wasn't very good at the time. It, it really, really needed needed a paint job. It needed uh, a lot of work done just just to get it up to the point where it could be preserved. I, I, I think in, in around the 97 area, it, it was really in danger of being lost if somebody didn't do something uh, very soon. So thank goodness it did get that protection and it did get a bit of a facelift at that time. More substantial restoration work was done a few years ago. That was uh, 2016, I think. Can you describe that work that was done uh, more recently? Sure. Yeah, so this work was, uh, it was one of these... Um, packages of work, to be honest, we didn't expect it to be so thorough. Uh, we had been advocating for for more preservation of the lighthouse. It was in desperate need of a paint job. And so we had been asking you know, our federal counterparts to to try and get something done. And, and Megan Leslie, who, who was an MP, actually tabled some, uh, you know, a, a bill to try and get, get this lighthouse with Parks Canada. Unfortunately, you know, an election was called and, and, and we didn't end up getting to that point. However, it wasn't too much longer after that that we ended up getting a call from from Peter McKay. The Conservative Party, who was in power at the time, had actually decided to allocate 
part of the budget to actually getting preservation work done to Sambro Island and Cape Sable. And it was in the tune of several million dollars between the two projects. And so we were quite pleasantly surprised and, and excited. And DFO shared with us the, the plans and, and the extent of what those preservation efforts and restoration efforts would be. And they were thorough. I mean, they, they had a, a gentleman who actually, you know, he specialized in doing, I won't say ancient, I guess you could say, but but certainly um, historic stonework. So he was in there with some, some of his tools, which, which weren't electric tools, and he was just chipping and pounding away inside this lighthouse and, and, and then re, resurfacing it and, and preserving it to make it look like it was new. And so by the time they were done with the paint job and fixing the collar and the concrete work around the collar and, and a lot of the woodwork and windows, it looked like it was almost a new lighthouse. It was absolutely fantastic, but probably the best shape that that lighthouse has been in since it was built. Yeah, I remember seeing pictures after that work. I was pretty impressed. As you mentioned, it, it looked great after that that job, but I'm sure there's still work that needs to be done. I mean, the, the work at these places is never actually finished. Once you finish something, there's something else that needs uh, needs repair. But at this point, what are the major needs for Sambro Island Lighthouse? I think attention is the, really the need. Constant, constant attention. As you mentioned, you know, things, as soon as you finish doing restoration work, as soon as you turn your head, things start to deteriorate right away. It, it, it is a very much exposed part of the North Atlantic. And so between the sea and the salt and the wind and, and rain, it, it starts to take a toll immediately. So although that restoration work that was done in 2016 was, was certainly welcomed, what we really want to see is a long-term preservation plan. That's what we would like to see. That's what we would like to see the federal government commit to, uh, you know, whether it be through Department of Fisheries and Oceans or Parks Canada. We just want to see that lighthouse preserved like any other historic site in Canada. It's, uh, you know, it was built as a result of the uh, the first act passed by our um, legislative assembly when it was first formed in 1758. So it has provincial historic significance, you know, and, and federal as well, obviously. I mean, it was the the first light people saw as they came to uh, came to Canada from overseas to their new home, you know, a lot of the immigrants and whatnot. So, so it certainly has significance where there's enough parties involved that I, I personally think would be able to put together a solid plan for future preservation. But it's a matter of, of getting people to the table. And, and there's a lot of other a lot of other things going on in the world right now, as you as you well know. So it, it's it's tough when the world always has something on the burner to convince somebody that a lighthouse is significant enough to to warrant attention. Well, that's a central problem a lot of us have. Uh, historic preservation and lighthouse preservation uh, specifically are not super high on most people's lists, and there are a lot of other good good causes, of course, but we agree that preservation is, is so important. And speaking of that, what, what has been the role of the Nova Scotia Lighthouse Preservation Society in the restoration and preservation of Sambro Lighthouse? Well, the Nova Scotia Lighthouse Preservation Society, their, their primary role is to encourage really a culture of preservation. So it's working with the community groups around the province to, to try and recognize the importance of their lighthouses and, and, and to help community groups establish themselves and get set up with a, uh, I guess you could say, with business plans and, and, and things like that to help better the prospects of preserving their lighthouse. So we don't necessarily do the physical preservation itself, but we help 
we help them connect. We help them connect with other communities that have done similar work. We help put them in contact with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans to help facilitate sometimes the transfer of ownership of, of lighthouse properties to some of these community groups. And so that that's our main focus is is really helping communities network and encouraging that 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 culture of preservation. And there's also a, a separate organization, the Sambro Island Lighthouse Heritage Society. Uh, and what what role does that organization play? They're more of a community driven organization. So so this is like a grassroots group of, of people who have family connections and community connections to that lighthouse. And so they, they have that extra bit of passion that's required to help push some of our uh, our political counterparts to, to do what they can to help preserve that lighthouse. And so that's where you start to learn a lot of the the individual stories and the impacts on on fishermen and families, and uh, and without those community groups like the Sambro Island Heritage Society, it's uh, it's pretty tough to get anything done without those grassroots community groups. So we touched on uh, public access earlier to Sambro Island, but I'd like to just talk a little bit more about it. I know this year uh, was different for lighthouses everywhere and for all kinds of uh, tourist attractions and that sort of thing. But if things, hopefully things get sort of back to normal this, this coming season, or at least the one after that, if not this one, what is the current status of tours to Sambro Lighthouse? How easy is it for, for the public to get out there? Well, right now we operate tours uh, on a couple of days throughout the year, and it takes place uh, during Southwester Days, which is a community celebration in Sambro. Uh, we've taken some people out on individual tours that are organized through the, the local uh, local charter within the community, but it hasn't been a regular routine set tour date type of schedule. And so what we would like to do is we would like to see ourselves get set up so that we can get people out there on a more regular basis. The demand is there. We're certainly seeing it now, especially with people wanting to do more local tourism within our own province, given the, the situation with COVID around the world. So I think this year might be the opportunity to really, really capture that opportunity and get people out there because the uh, the local demand is going to be here. How can people help if they would like to support the ongoing preservation of Sambro Lighthouse? The best way to support is to to make it known to their local MPs uh, that lighthouses in Nova Scotia need to be saved. They're, they are our culture. I mean, if you look at you look at what brings people to Nova Scotia, it's lighthouses and lobsters. That's that's what brings people here. People love it. The coastline, the, this beautiful opportunity to be part of the the, the wild North Atlantic and and see these structures for what they are. They're absolutely majestic, and so. Anybody who comes to Nova Scotia, is in Nova Scotia, or just loves lighthouses in general, just voice it to their MPs. Voice it to whoever, whichever political, you know, uh, affiliated party they have in their community that, hey, listen, lighthouses are just as important as other historic structures in Canada, and they need to be preserved. And, and it's really that pressure. It's that it's that knowledge that it is important to people that drives political, uh, you know, political action. By the way, I don't know if people listening to this podcast are going to be able to hear this, but my neighbor is shoveling snow out here, so I don't know if that can be heard through my mic or not, but we just had a foot of snow a couple of days ago. You probably got some of that same storm, I, I would imagine. We did, yeah. It got pretty wild, actually. The the seas right now are pretty angry as a result. Uh, it was pretty pretty wild around here. I'm about I'm a couple of miles from Whaleback Lighthouse at the mouth of the Piscataqua River, and the 70-foot lighthouse and the waves were... Uh, hitting the rocks and going over the top of the lighthouse. 
during this. Beautiful. Yeah, it is. It is beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. But back to the support of the lighthouse. If if people feel like they want to make uh, some sort of donation, financial donation to the effort, is there a mechanism through which they can do that? Well, certainly, if they're, if they're looking to help out with uh, with lighthouses in general, the Nova Scotia Lighthouse Preservation Society has a uh, has a website that you can go to, the NS, nslps.ca, uh, and there's an opportunity there to become a member and and donate. So, if you're going to donate, you might as well become a a member and do it in that in that way. Uh, that way, we can keep you up to date, send you newsletters and and, and things of that nature to, to let you know what community groups are doing around the province to preserve their uh, their lighthouses. I have one final question for you for bonus points. Get ready because this is going to go on your permanent record. So think hard here. <laughs> okay. So, what has been your personal favorite part of your involvement with Sambro Lighthouse and, uh, by extension, lighthouse preservation in general? I think my favorite part of it is the satisfaction of being part of part of the history of it. And, and what I mean by that is that we spend a lot of time looking in the, in the history books, we, in the archives, and, and reading about the lives of the people who did everything they could. And unfortunately, some gave lives um, in order to preserve our way of life uh, along the sea. And to know that you yourself are playing a role and that someday in the future people will you know may look back your own family members and say hey you know my family took part in helping preserve our our culture and our heritage along the shore with these lighthouses that feels really good and you know and and i think that's why we all why we all do it and seeing the look on people's faces when they come and they visit the light they see pictures and the pictures are great don't get me wrong they're wonderful but when you can bring somebody out to one of these lighthouses for the first time and you see their eyes just light up and you can tell they're humbled, their knees are probably shaking <laughs> because of just the feeling that the, the majestic view they get when they walk up on those rocks. It's just nothing short of humbling and the sense of wonder. It's almost like everybody becomes a kid again when they walk in front of one of these lighthouses. And so that's probably one of my one of my favorite feelings when I'm involved in preserving these lighthouses. Beautifully said. And you know, when I ask that question of various people, they almost always touch on the same same aspect, you know, the dealing with uh, people visiting the place and having such a great time. Also, just uh, soaking in the history. Very few places have the tremendous uh, history that Sambro Island has. So, uh, Joe Fleming, I, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me today. It's a, a lot of fun chatting and I hope we can do it again sometime. There's a, a lot to talk about with Sambro and the other, uh, preserving the other lighthouses in that area too, which you've been involved with. But uh, Joe Fleming of the Nova Scotia Lighthouse Preservation Society, thank you so much. It's my absolute pleasure. Our next guest is a Canadian author and former lighthouse keeper, Chris Mills. Chris is originally from Ontario, but he has lived most of his life in Nova Scotia. Between 1989 and 1997, Chris worked as a lightkeeper at 11 different light stations in three provinces on both the east and west coasts of Canada. Chris was a founding member of the Nova Scotia Lighthouse Preservation Society. He's authored two books, Vanishing Lights and Lighthouse Legacies, Stories of Nova Scotia's Lightkeeping Families. Chris was our guest in episode 23 of Lighthearted, and he was also part of the special edition where we discussed the movie, The Lighthouse. 
Let's listen to my recent conversation with Chris Mills now. I'm speaking today with my friend Chris Mills in Nova Scotia. I understand uh, you've been doing a lot of shoveling today, Chris. Yeah, well, I, I used to work in radio and wrote a lot, so I shoveled a lot there, and now I'm shoveling the white <laughs> stuff because right. we, do, we do live in the great white north, and we had a bit of a, a blizzard overnight in Nova Scotia with 30 to 60 centimeters of snow, which is you know a foot to two feet of snow down last night. So yeah, there was a bit of shoveling this morning. Yeah. Yeah. As I said that, as I said, you're doing some shoveling today. I realized that could have a double meaning there. So thank you for, for clarifying that. Well, we'll concentrate on the snow part. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we're going to talk about Sambro Lighthouse today, which I think is one of your favorite places. I know we've, we've talked about it uh, quite a few times over the years and you have kind of a long personal relationship uh, with, with Sambro. How far back does that go? Well, it goes back about uh, 30-plus years. It goes back to 1988 uh, when I was not living in Ketch Harbor as I am now, but Ketch Harbor is about uh, three miles as the crow flies from Sambro Island, which is at the southwestern approaches to Halifax Harbor. And um, I had a chance to get out and see the lightkeepers. I knew the lighthouse was going to be de-staffed in March of 1988. And along with lighthouse historian and friend Rip Irwin, I went out to the island for three days and spent three days in very stormy weather, much like we're having right now, snow, sleet, rain, good foghorn, lighthouse weather, and spent three days with the keepers there. And that was the beginning of my my association with Sambro Light. Now, that last keeper and his wife, they were there, was it something like 24 years? Is that right? Bang on. Marjorie and John Fairservice and their daughter, Kelly, who was also a lighthouse keeper there, a relief keeper, and she was the final principal keeper there. Uh, they had originally gone to the island. John was assistant in 1964. In 1968, he became principal keeper and he was the last, officially the last uh, full-time principal keeper with his daughter filling in for him as he and Marjorie were preparing to move their belongings off the island. And the island was de-staffed after uh, 230 years of continuous staff status. Well, we'll get back to talking about the uh post-de-staffing years uh, shortly. But let me just ask you, ask you a very general question here. What's so special about Sambro Island and the lighthouse? Well, Sambro is special for many reasons. Um, it's special because it's a beautiful, wild, semi-remote spot. It's, it's special because of its role in the development and growth of Halifax as a garrison town and as a town and a city that welcomed immigrants because we, we processed a lot of immigrants coming from the old world at Pier 21 in Halifax, and it was often the first site of a, the new world that immigrants saw. It was also extremely important. Halifax was founded in 1749. Sambro Light was begun in 1758 and completed in 1760, and it was instrumental in not only guiding naval ships in and out of the garrison town of Halifax, but guiding all manner of traffic from uh, lowly fishing vessels to, uh, and I only say that because of their size, to uh, ultimately to ocean liners uh, during the final years when lighthouses were really important in the 1940s and 50s. So it's had a huge role in the growth of Halifax. So if we could go back to the early history a little bit, what was it like? Sambro was a fairly isolated place. What was uh, life like for the early keepers there? The position that Sambro Island has always had with relation to the mainland hasn't changed, but back then it would have been right. much more remote because uh, we didn't have mechanized transport. And now you can get out there, if the weather's good, you can get out there on a jet ski or a kayak <laughs> in, the, in the summertime. It's amazing. But 
back in the day, there were no roads to this area from Halifax. Everything was done by sea. And of course, weather was a huge factor. And if you were out there, you were basically uh, a prisoner of the island while the weather was bad, especially during this time of year. So for the early keepers, having to do everything manually, of course, with seal and whale oil lights to maintain and cannon and other various explosive fog signals to maintain, as well as getting their provisions there and having their families with them. As you can imagine, without the modern conveniences that we take for granted, um, life was a, a quite a strenuous affair. I'm sure it was. I spoke with Joe Fleming a bit about the earliest fog signal at Sambro, which was actually a cannon. And I know you're very into lighthouse history, but you also love the uh, the fog signals and the history of the various fog signals. Would you care to comment on the, the later fog signals at Sambro after the cannon? I can't give you a, a definite or definitive chronological list of the fog signals, Jeremy, but I can tell you that there's been a, a plethora of signals used there, starting with signal cannon, also involving uh, a settle, a gongs and bells, acetylene fog gun, which I'll talk about in a second, explosive fog signals, a diaphone fog signal, electronic fog signals of three types, and now no fog signal, which is a story in itself. Mm. Perhaps r- really interesting the fact that many, many Canadian and U.S. and European lighthouses used the Canadian invention the diaphone from the early part of the 20th century until the latter part of the 20th century and in Canada till 2000, actually, uh, the last diaphone was taken out of service. But it wasn't until the 1960s that the Coast Guard installed the diaphone on Sambro Island or the Department of Transport. But before then, they were actually still using acetylene and explosive charges for fog signal. The acetylene gun looked a bit like a trumpet set on end, and acetylene was used to create an explosion, which created something akin to a cannon shot or a gunshot, and that was used as a fog signal. And in fact, a few years ago, we found parts of this heavy bronze and brass apparatus on the beach, which was part of the acetylene fog gun used from the 1930s up into the 50s or early 60s. And then, of course, the diaphone, which I mentioned. And then with semi-automation in the early 70s, electronic fog signals, then a more powerful electric signal, and then post-solarization, battery-operated horn, which was taken out of service more than a decade ago due to complaints from a local resident. And that's a story in itself. Thanks for explaining the acetylene gun. I really didn't have much of a, a picture of how that might work. So that's a fairly unusual thing. The fog cannon was unusual too, but there were a few of those at early uh, light stations in the U.S. So well, of course, at yeah. Boston, Boston Light, and we had uh, Cross Island on the south shore had a fog cannon. I believe there was one at Cape Roseway uh, in southwest Nova Scotia, and there were three, I believe, 24-pounders in use on Sambro Island. Now, a garrison had been established on the island of three or four soldiers to staff this array of cannon. And the signal, to my understanding, was used not only to pass messages ashore, um, like one shot followed by a certain amount of time and another shot or two signified some sort of vessel traffic of Her Majesty's or His Majesty's naval ships, but it also used in fog as as a way of letting the mariner know that Samber Island was there. And it's an extremely dangerous place, especially in the fog, because it's surrounded by treacherous reefs. There are still two complete 24-pounders 
uh, on the island and parts uh, of a third and fourth on the island, which is quite uh, quite astounding. They're still very visible close to the lighthouse. The fact that they've stayed at Sambro all these, those years is amazing. Quite interestingly, I'll just add, Jeremy, that one of them is in several pieces, which begs the question, how powerful was the explosion mm. that blew it apart? Because <laughs> it's about six inches thick cast iron. It's just incredible. So... Uh, obviously, these were dangerous things to use, um, but they were as effective as technology allowed at the time to uh, act as a warning signal for a Sambro, Sambro light. To shift gears a little bit for, for a few minutes here, I understand Sambro has a ghost story, which, of course, is something every old lighthouse needs. And uh, <laughs> and apparently you had your own strange experience there. Could you tell me uh, the usual explanation for the ghost and, and what your own experience was? I might praise my my story of the ghost by saying that there's a correlation between the amount of rum consumed by lighthouse keepers and fishermen and the amount of haunting on a particular lighthouse. Uh Um, And we'll leave it at that. Now, I wasn't drinking rum when I was on the island and supposedly experienced double Alec or double Alex, but apparently Alexander Alexander, known locally in Samro as double Alec because of his double barreled name, was one of the soldiers stationed at the garrison, assumedly to uh, fire that signal cannon. Apparently, as the story goes, he had been sent to town, to Halifax, to gra- gather provisions for his, his colleagues on the island. And he had taken the money and he had spent it on wine, women and song. And as the saying goes, and wasted the rest. He came back to the island contrite, uh, got in trouble with his superiors and apparently hung himself somewhere near the tower. Don't ask me how or what he hung himself from. But apparently his his colleagues came upon him, his fellow soldiers, and he was still living, barely, and they wanted to cut him down. But their superior said, no, it is not allowed in this organization, this army, this detachment, whatever it was, and he died. And soon after his death, the hauntings began. Um, and it's interesting to note, I interviewed Minnie Smith, whose grandfather, William Gilkey, was a lightkeeper on the island in the 1870s. She was close to 100 when I interviewed her, and she recalled hearing stories of uh, unknown figures walking around the island back in the 1870s and 1880s that her grandfather would have experienced. Those experiences continued into the 1980s with the Fair Service family. So Double Alec or Double Alex apparently remained on the island right up until the time of its de-staffing, and he may well still be there. So do you feel you've gotten to know him well enough that you can call him Double Al? I do not. Okay. No, that would that would cheapen his ghostly presence. I would not call him <laughs> <Yeah>. Double Al. <laughs> that uh, sounds, my, sounds too friendly. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds a little bit too, yeah, a little bit too gauche. But uh, my experience was that during this 1988 early March, mid-March trip, and uh, I was staying in the assistant keeper's house with, house with my friend Rip and the uh, relief assistant light keeper, Jerry O'Neill. We'd stayed up late talking about lighthouse life and the ghost story and everything else. It was blowing hard. The foghorn was on. The light was on. It was a typical lighthouse night. We all retired to our respective rooms upstairs. And two or three in the morning, I awoke to the sounds of someone going through charts. We had hauled out some navigational charts the evening before, and someone was apparently going through these charts and moving them. You could hear the paper rustling in the living room. Hmm. Um, So I thought, well, one of these guys is up and can't sleep, and he's just having a look. 
Um, so I questioned the other two gentlemen the next morning, Rip and Jerry, and no, I wasn't up, and no, no, I have no idea what was going on. So it wasn't one of those hugely frightening, ghastly, ghostly stories, but it just kind of begs the question, who was up looking through the charts while three keepers and visitors were sleeping upstairs on a stormy night on Samberl Island? <laughs> I'll leave it's, it at that. Okay. That stirs the imagination, let's say, for sure. But I, I will relate one story which occurred to... Uh, Kelly Fairservice, who was the daughter of John and Marjorie, she had a friend visiting, and her friend was a no-nonsense sort of gal. I think I believe she worked in the offshore on an oil rig, and she was on her off time, and Kelly had brought her out to visit her family on Sambro Island. Uh, the uh, young lady had retired early one night, gone up to Kelly's room, and got into bed, and at some point during the evening, she felt a presence in the room and something very heavy and large, laid on top of her. And she was absolutely terrified. She was able to get out of bed and come downstairs and rejoin the family, but she didn't gather enough wits about her, so to speak, to tell Kelly what had happened till the next morning. But it had frightened her very badly. And this would have been the the uh, during the late 70s or early 1980s. Um, so she had a very frightening experience there. And there were all sorts of other less frightening experiences. But uh, it, it appears that something was happening on Sambro Island. It does appear that way. That's uh, that's pretty unnerving to have some, some, something or somebody lie on top of you, somebody you can't see. I'll just mention that I, you know, I've had experiences that lead me to being open-minded about these things. So I, I don't judge uh, any of this at all. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> should probably, Absol- abs- yeah. Absolutely. I don't disbelieve. I don't believe. And I don't disbelieve. <laughs> right. I find myself uh, on that same fence, but uh, I definitely exactly. have an open mind about it. Moving ahead a little bit here. Well, back to your visit there in 1988 when it was still staffed. Very shortly after you visited there, it was de-staffed. What kind of condition was the place in at that time? John was a lightkeeper's lightkeeper. Uh, John kept the place immaculate. And even though they had known that destaffing was looming for several years, it was something that began in the early 70s, and it was just a matter of time, uh, he continued to maintain the site to very high standards. So you would have two keeper's houses, which were kept up. You would have had uh, two, at least two ancillary sheds down by the water, uh, and a boathouse and a boat to maintain, as well as the fog alarm, fog signal, engine room uh, up the hill next to the lighthouse and the light itself. Uh, boardwalks and sets of stairs, the uh, skids for the vessel, the outboard motors for the vessel. Everything was kept in tip-top shape and uh, everything was painted up. So um, everything was in excellent shape. And it's quite shocking to look at an aerial view of the station Uh, current aerial view and then compare it to one taken in the late 70s or early 80s and realize what a glorious, large, well-maintained station it it once was. Between then and now, most of the buildings have been lost except for the the lighthouse tower and I believe a couple of other buildings. Can you just reiterate what uh, remains standing there besides the lighthouse? Right now, the lighthouse, which has been restored twice and is in very, very good shape inside and out, Next to it is the fog alarm building, which would have contained the engines and compressors for the diaphone, and then laterally the electronic uh, horn equipment, as well as backup generators and a radio beacon uh, and a radio room uh, on the end of the building. That's in very, very poor shape. And the gas house, which is down in one of the two landing coves, it was apparently used for the manufacture of acetylene gas, which was used not only in the fog signal, but as I understand it, in the light itself. So it was a building 
in which acetylene gas was manufactured. Don't, me, don't ask me about the process, but that is apparently what happened there. Uh, that building went through a partial restoration thanks to Rip Irwin, who I've already mentioned, the lighthouse historian, back in the mid-90s. But unfortunately, nothing has come of that. Joe Fleming, who you spoke with a little while ago, may have mentioned the fact that uh, some military folks and himself went out and helped shore up the, the base of this historic gas house a few years ago. But it, since then, nothing has been done. So essentially what's left is the 1758 lighthouse. Three houses uh, that were once on the station are gone. One was floated ashore in the late 70s and still stands in Sambro as a private residence. Uh, one was um, fell down basically and was demolished by Coast Guard. And the other one was burned to the ground by vandals. That's sad. So it sounds like there's really nothing in the works as far as uh, preserving the, the other buildings besides the tower. There was talk about trying to do something with the fog alarm building, but it's full of asbestos, which is problematic. And it's also reached the point where it would have to be a, a, a basically a total reconstruction. My hope would be to see the gas house saved. It's a, a marvelous welcome to the island to come into this granite cleft basically with with deep water with a beautiful stone foundation in this old wooden fish shed sort of building a substantial size building at that uh, with the lighthouse looming over top it's extremely uh, photogenic and it's uh, it's impressive to come in that cove and see that and it's really part of the um the scene of, of sambro island when you see it first coming from the the southwest uh, but i don't see anything active happening with that uh, happily the lighthouse is still lit and is in excellent condition inside and out so that is something but to me a light station must be a light station not just one building but the the ancillary buildings and fog alarm buildings sheds and dwellings and that to me is very important for the cohesiveness the integrity of a site unfortunately that's been lost in north america's oldest operating lighthouse station and that's very unfortunate do you feel that there's enough support in place to keep the lighthouse preserved for the foreseeable future? I think because the Coast Guard and the Government of Canada have realized how important the tower is in terms of its heritage, its history, and its part of its role in the, the history of not only Samro but Halifax itself, I believe that that is a, a tower that will always be maintained. As far as developing the islands in an historical sense or context, I don't know if that will ever happen. Joe may have spoken to that with you. He could speak to you more definitively about that. I know there are hopes to make it more visitor friendly. Um, but at this point, I'm of the mind, and I might not find favor with certain lighthouse aficionados by saying this, that it may be the best, although there is decay, there is a nobility in that decay. And at least the lighthouse is in decent shape, and it continues to flash its welcome and warning. So it is part of a life cycle of that site and as such maybe it should be enjoyed as such should there even be public access to sambro my opinion has evolved um, as i get older i'm 56 now which is not any kind of benchmark i guess um, but my point is that i think in earlier days i would have thought yes it should be restored as it was as a staff station it should be rebuilt it should be maintained and it should have regular access by visitors uh, my thought now is that this has been a rather organic process, even though it does include a lot of neglect from the federal government in the past that's let the station come to the stage it is now. But having said that, there is a certain nobility in that tower, as I've mentioned, and, and the decay around it. 
I think it should be carefully developed in terms of being stabilized and maintaining the tower and possibly preserving the gas house. I do believe that's important. But I do not believe it should become a tourist mecca. It should not become the equivalent of our Peggy's Cove, which some of your listeners may be familiar with. It's the premier lighthouse site in this part of North America because of its lighthouse and because of its accessibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that will happen with Sambro. Uh, I believe it's it's important to carefully and sensibly and sensitively have the site available to visitors, but not a wholesale, large-scale development. Access is important, but it, it needs to be controlled and, and uh, needs to be within certain limits for the natural environment of the place and for the the health of the stairs and the lighthouse, among other things. So uh, I definitely agree with you that you can't just have uh, wholesale public access at, at a lot of these places. At this point, I think careful, well-considered, low-impact development would be important to interpret the site and maintain the lighthouse itself, but not develop it wholesale into a, a Disneyland, so to speak. Summing it up, what are your hopes for the future of Sambro Lighthouse? Sambro Light is just so integral to the history of Halifax and, and Sambro Village itself. Sambro continues to be an active fishing village, a busy one at that. And every fishing boat that leaves Sambro passes on either side of Sambro Light, coming and going. And even though it's not as important as it once was, it is symbolic of the protection it's offered to mariners over the years and of the welcome it's offered to people coming to a new life in a new land. And as such, it's absolutely crucial that that lighthouse be maintained and developed to a point so that people can understand and be proud of what we have in North America's oldest operating lighthouse. Nicely summed up, my friend. Chris Mills, as always, it's a, it's a real pleasure talking with you, you know, whether it's uh, about one of your favorite lighthouses, Sambro, or they're about the movie, The Lighthouse, which is the last thing we talked about from the podcast. <laughs> yes, that, was, it is. that was fun, too. And I still haven't gotten over that one. <laughs> <laughs> I think a, that a lot of people would say the same thing about that, for good or for bad, yeah. Um, Absolutely. Well, thank, thank you, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to talk with you again, and I I'm, I'm really enjoy talking with you about lighthouses. It's a passion for both of us, and it's a, a real pleasure. Thanks again to our guests today, Joe Fleming and Chris Mills. For more on the Nova Scotia Lighthouse Preservation Society, check out their website at www.nslps.com. And the Sambro Island Lighthouse Heritage Society has a Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash Sambro Lighthouse. I've been to Halifax, Nova Scotia, but I've never been out to Sambro Island. I hope I get to do it sometime. It's definitely on my bucket list. And hopefully I'll get to do it with Joe Fleming and or Chris Mills as my guide. For the next episode of Lighthearted, we'll stay a little closer to home. We'll have an interview with Ken Morton, the owner of Sandy Neck Lighthouse on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Many thanks, as always, to the staff, board members, volunteers, and members of the U.S. Lighthouse Society at the Society's headquarters at the Point No Point Light Station in Washington and around the world. To learn more about group tours, the quarterly journal The Keeper's Log, the Lighthouse Passport Program, the J. Candace Clifford Lighthouse Research Catalog, and all the other things the Society has to offer, go to uslhs.org.
If you listen to this podcast using Apple Podcasts or any other app or website that allows listeners to post reviews, please rate and review us. And if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can always email me at jeremy at uslhs.org. As the young wizard Harry Potter once said, quote, We've all got both light and dark inside us. What matters is the part we choose to act on. End quote. As always, thanks for listening and... Keep a good light. Out in the dark, I'm gonna let it shine. Out in the dark, I'm gonna let it shine. Out in the dark, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine.